and welcome to Ipsy Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm Mabel Romero, assistant professor at the Northern Illinois University College of Law. My guest today is Michael Mannheimer, professor at Northern Kentucky University Chase College of Law. We'll be talking about his paper today, Vagueness as Impossibility, which is forthcoming in the Texas Law Review. So I'm really excited to talk with you today about this paper. And um, it, seems that, it seems that the void for vagueness doctrine is kind of having this moment right now in um, scholarship. I just talked with Cynthia Godso from Brooklyn Law about her paper with regard to the void for vagueness doctrine as well. Yeah, yeah, I heard that one. That was, yeah, uh, thanks for having me, by the way. Uh, yeah, it is really um, having kind of, as you said, a, a resurgence in the scholarship, I think partly driven by some of the recent Supreme Court cases. Yeah, and I, I want to talk with you about those in a little bit too, because it seems like you know, it's been kind of just ignored for a while and suddenly there's this questioning as to whether it's even a valid doctrine or, or not and how to go about applying it. But I just wanted to, you know, orient a lot of our listeners who aren't necessarily legal, legally trained on what the two big rationales for the void for doc, vagueness doctrine really are, what they're supposed to be, I guess. Yeah. So the Supreme Court has justified the void for vagueness doctrine uh, which so let's back up a little bit from there. The Supreme Court says that statutes that are unduly vague or indefinite um, are are totally void. Um, and the two rationales the Supreme Court has given are one that uh, it is too indefinite. It it doesn't give uh, potential actors. Uh, sufficient notice of what's illegal or what might subject them to civil liability. I focus on criminal, but uh, it's been applied to to non-penal statutes as well. Um, And then the second rationale is that um, unduly vague statutes um, delegate too much lawmaking power to non-legislators, to judges, to juries, to police, to prosecutors. Um, And, you know, uh, Concomitant with that, and some people posit this as sort of a third rationale, but I, I kind of think of them as going together. There's sort of a rule of law rationale that you know, if, if too much um, legislative power is delegated to these executive and judicial actors, um, we really have the rule of law. We just have the rule of you know, it's it's law by cop or law by judge, law by prosecutor, yeah, law by prosecutor, something like that. Okay. So this sounds sort of like, you know, kind of for those who are listening, who might be a bit more familiar with this concept, you know, sort of a non-delegation, but also separation of powers sort of issue. So um, have, has the Supreme Court really focused on one of these two a bit more than the other, or have they really determined that one's more important than the other at all? Yeah. Well, they say that this, the second, um, non-delegation constraint is is sort of the more important aspect of the doctrine. Um, and you're right, it does have a lot to do with separation of powers, um, which which makes sense when we're talking about federal statutes, because uh, we have separation of powers constraints in, in the Constitution that are fairly obvious at the federal level, not quite as obvious at the state level. Um, but um, there's a great piece by Chapman and McConnell in the Yale Law Journal from a few years ago, are talking about due process as separation of power. So you can you can read a sort of separation of powers slash non-delegation constraint into the due process clauses of the Constitution as well. But uh, the Supreme Court has sort of emphasized that uh, 
for about the last 35 years or so, they've said that non-delegation aspect is the more important of the two rationales. Okay. So the doctrine has been under some attack of late, right? Um, could you explain that for us? Yeah, and that's part of the reason that um, I got interested in this topic is that uh, there's been sort of uh, so, some some daylight between Justice Thomas and Justice Gorsuch on a number of issues. A lot of people thought that they would you know vote in lockstep when Justice Gorsuch was appointed to the court. Um, but it's fun to see the differences between the two. And one of the differences between the two is is on this issue. Um, Justice Thomas, in a couple of cases in the last four or five years, has taken the position that the void for vagueness doctrine really is not a constitutional doctrine, that the court really has no place in striking down vague laws as a violation of due process, um, that it really comes from what's called the rule of lenity, which deals which 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 applies when a statute is ambiguous rather than vague um the difference being we can think of an ambiguous statute as having a set number of possible meanings usually two sometimes three sometimes more but uh, it's got a, a finite number a small number of possible meanings whereas a vague statute um has sort of an infinite number of meanings Uh, And Justice Thomas says it's really about the rule of lenity. It's really about interpreting unclear statutes narrowly to favor the defendant um, in a criminal case, which is is not a constitutional doctrine. It's just a rule of statutory construction. Legislatures can get rid of it if they wanted to. And Justice Gorsuch has come back um, in in the latest case, Sessions versus DeMaia, which was an immigration case. Um, and he wrote a separate opinion concurring in the judgment. This this opinion attracted some attention in the popular media because it was Justice Gorsuch joining the you know the so-called four liberals. Um, and he wrote a concurring opinion or an opinion concurring in the judgment, uh, sort of defending the void for vagueness doctrine on constitutional grounds, going back to Blackstone mm-hmm. and some of the cases from the 18th century. And I talk a little bit about that in, or I'm sorry, the 19th century. I talk a little a little bit about that in the article. And it's really interesting reading the article and going through some of the history that you lay out, you know, and even some of the more recent sort of um, opinions that you see dealing with the void for vagueness doctrine, because as you kind of um, hinted at, we have this very, at least I think popularly, a lot of Americans have this idea of, okay, there's this liberal side of the court, there's this conservative side of the court, and they're going to always decide on issues, including dealing with the void for vagueness doctrine in exactly the same way with each other, never the twain shall meet. And it's interesting to see that sort of interplay that you're talking about, um, you know, between Gorsuch and Thomas and kind of the differences that they have here, I think. It's really fascinating. Yeah. And even before Justice Gorsuch, Gorsuch joined the court, uh, Justice Scalia, whose, whose seat uh, Justice Gorsuch uh, took, um, Justice Scalia and Justice Thomas really had sort of the same split. Justice Scalia wrote the opinion in um, United States versus Johnson, which was a 2015 case, I think, and Justice Thomas wrote a, a separate opinion, agreeing with the result, but but agree or disagreeing very much with the the, the whole void for vagueness doctrine that the that the court has set up. So I want to talk about the difference a bit more about um, the difference between ambiguity and vagueness. And you were talking about how okay, if you've got an ambiguous statute, you might be able to you know, perform in accordance with that statute, even though, or, or one of the interpretations of that statute could have two interpretations, three interpretations, or something along those lines, versus a vague statute, which 
there's no way to perform with it. Could you give us some examples maybe as to an ambiguous statute versus a vague statute maybe? Sure. Um, well, the uh, well for, for the way I explain it to my students is uh, if you think about the ambiguity, it's sort of the, you know, if you think about the optical um, illusion of the rabbit or duck, right? It's either a rabbit or a duck, depending on how you look at it, but it's one or the other. Um, a vague statute is more like an inkblot. You know, you, you get 100 people in and they'll give you 100 different answers as to what the inkblot means. Um, but, in, but in actual statutory terms, um, an ambiguous statute um, you know, good example. The one, I, one, one that I use in the article is from the Muscarello case, where uh, the the statute forbids you know carrying a firearm in relation to a drug offense, and Muscarello had a firearm. I believe it was in his truck uh, uh, while he was dealing drugs, was on his person. So the question was. Um, does carry when you know, does carrying a firearm mean having it on your person, or does it mean just having it with you when you're traveling somewhere? Um, and and it really it had to mean one or the other. Um, whereas a vague statute, um, you know, uh, the um, trying to think of a good example, Calder versus Lawson uh, was was considered vague. Uh, the, the statute there was considered vague, where it, re it required uh, someone to provide a police officer with um, credible and reliable identification, um, where reliable was really, you know, up to the individual police officer. Um, so, you know, what what that could mean, um, you know, it, it 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 could mean any number of possible things depending on what police officer you got. Exactly. So you have a police officer essentially legislating and imposing their, right. their belief and their interpretation as to what, you know, reliable means or reasonable means. Or um, you, There's an interesting case that you talked about, or at least, uh, you know, gave an example of when it came to uh, a vague statute where um, people couldn't congregate on a sidewalk and engage in annoying behavior or something like that. And to me, annoying behavior from the public could be something, I'll be honest, pretty wide ranging, um, but it might not be to other people. So I thought that that was a really good example of, you know, what exactly vague looks like. Yeah, that's that, that's another good example. That's from Coates versus City of Cincinnati, um, my, my adopted hometown, um, where an ordinance, uh, yeah, forbade uh, two or more people from, or I guess it was three or more people from standing on the sidewalk and engage in uh, behavior that's annoying to passersby. Which, as I say in um, the article, you know, could be something as trivial as wearing argyle socks with sandals, something that I've been known to do. Right. <laughs> yeah that is pretty annoying i've got to tell you got to stop that yeah um but you know when you have these well let me backtrack a bit don't ambiguous statutes and vague statutes present relatively similar problems i mean you've got the same notice problems i would think the same sort of you know um potentially you know legislating by the executive sort of problems with cops determining what you know statute means or a prosecutor really you know shaping what that means or perhaps even you know the court coming and you know shaping it however they wish um what practical cures have been used to fix these issues in the past 
Yeah, so exactly. And that's that's when I said that um, the difference between Justice Gorsuch and Justice Thomas was one of the things that prompted me to write this. Really, the big thing that prompted me was this sort of riddle in criminal law. Um, you know, in, in my criminal law course at the beginning of the semester, we look at vagueness, we look at ambiguity. And you're right, the, the, the void for vagueness doctrine and the rule of lenity, which says, again, says that ambiguous statutes should be interpreted narrowly when possible, they're both justified um, by the same rationales. Uh, the rule of lenity is, is also justified by these sort of notice and um, non-delegation slash separation of powers slash rule of law rationale. Um, the one, you know, the one being an individual rights rationale, one being more of a structural rationale. Um, that ambiguous statutes, uh, you know, again, they don't give notice uh, to to the average person, you know, what is criminal and what is not. Um, so Muscarello, you know, in in deciding, you know, can I, assuming that he you know, he did this, which is sort of counterfactual, probably, but you know, assuming he thought about it, you know, can I carry this? Can I keep this gun in my truck while I do this drug transaction? Well, the statute says I can't carry it. What does that mean, right? So he he wouldn't know from the outset what he was forbidden from doing. Um, and, you know, there's a certain non-delegation problem there, too, because especially with regard to prosecutors, because prosecutors will have a tendency to read statutes as broadly as they can. Um, so writing ambiguous statutes, what legislatures are doing is sort of leaving it up to prosecutors as to um, how broadly or narrowly to interpret the statute. They'll interpret, interpret it broadly, which will cover more people, which gives them a lot more discretion as to whom, whom to prosecute. Whereas if it were a narrower statute, there'd be a much smaller pool of people for the prosecutors um, to, to, to prosecute. They could still exercise some prosecutorial discretion, but it's to a lesser extent. And, and you know, they'll have, the prosecutors will have that discretion uh, unless and until some court of last resort interprets the statute in a um, uh, uh, it, 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 in a definitive manner. Um, so the rule of lenity says, you know, courts should interpret statutes um, narrowly to, to, to try to, you know, head off. So maybe a prosecutor at the outset will, will sort of realize this, this statute will ultimately be interpreted fairly narrowly. So maybe I shouldn't interpret it broadly and prosecute all these people. Um, so that, that kind of culminates for me in sort of a riddle, which is, why is the void for vagueness doctrine a constitutional doctrine um, and, and the rule of lenity is not? The rule of lenity is not constitutionally required. In fact, many states have passed statutes saying courts don't apply the rule of lenity anymore. The rule of lenity is this common law rule dating from, you know, back to the 16, 1700s, perhaps. Um, but it is just a, a rule of statutory construction and, and uh, legislatures can abrogate it. Um, so, so perhaps this led me to think, well, perhaps Justice Thomas is right um, that, that, you know, neither one is constitutionally required. Actually, when I started writing this article, I, I was sort of thinking exactly the other way. I was thinking, well, maybe the rule of lenity is constitutionally required. Maybe there's something... Um, some form of the rule of lenity that's constitutionally required, but I quickly disabused myself of that notion 
when I realized that states had started abrogating the rule of lenity, you know, even before the 14th Amendment was was ratified. So it'd be difficult to argue that the framers and the ratifiers of the 14th Amendment, um, you know, understood it as incorporating some form of the rule of lenity. Um, but to my mind, you know, either they're both constitutionally required or neither one is constitutionally required. Uh, it's, it's odd that, that they're both justified on the same two rationales, but one is a constitutional doctrine and one is not. Yeah, that is really odd, actually. And um, what I really want to discuss now, after looking at this sort of conundrum and, you know, it does feel kind of like this really confusing riddle. Why is you know, one seen as constitutional and why is the other not? Um, and your solution here is, I think, really fascinating. Your solution is to prescribe against requiring the impossible. Can you explain to us what that means? Yeah. So, um, you know, dating back over 400 years, in Dr. Bonham's case, Lord Cook uh, tells us Parliament cannot compel the impossible. And it's such an obvious proposition that people don't really talk about it that much. Um, you know, the legislature can't compel us to uh, go six months without drinking water or, or to, uh, to, to fly around the house once a day. Um, and this, this, I think, this idea that, that the legislature can't require us to do the impossible um, is, is, it provides a better way of thinking about vagueness and ambiguity um, than simply thinking about it in terms of how difficult it is to understand the statute. Because how difficult it is to understand, how indefinite a statute is, is always going to be a matter of degree, um, which I think is part of the reason why the void for vagueness doctrine is so muddled. The court has to draw lines, and where they draw lines it seems to many people, I'm not the first one to make this observation, certainly, you know, seems uh, fairly arbitrary. Um, but if we think about it in terms of um, legislatures not being permitted to require that we do the impossible, I think it makes it easier in some cases um, to, to figure out what statutes violate due process and which ones do not. Um, so, for so, and it, well, it explains, let me start by saying it explains why ambiguous statutes don't violate due process because if a statute is is ambiguous if there is a narrower reading or a broader reading um, you can always comply simply by giving it the broader reading uh, you can always assume the broader reading holds um, and I'll just give the statute a wide berth and comply with with the broader reading now that might not be the best reading uh, the rule of lenity tells us that's not the best reading it, it, we, if legislatures draft ambiguous statutes, they might be deterring non-harmful behavior if, if it's worded too broadly. They might be deterring socially beneficial behavior uh, if it's worded too broadly. But as I say in the article, that's not really a constitutional concern. It's, it's a policy concern, but it's, it's not really of constitutional magnitude. Um, but with a truly vague statute, like the ones that we talked about, the ones in Coates and in Colander, um, where it's, it's an offense to you know, gather with two or more people uh, and, 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 and not be annoying to passersby, well, there's really no way to comply with that 
other than by not showing up in public, which I suppose is is technically possible. But um, you know, I think we would say, well, that's 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 practically impossible to not show up in public with with two other people because anything you do while you're in public with two other people could be deemed annoying to someone with very delicate sensibility. So it's really it's truly impossible to comply with a statute like that. Or really curmudgeonly sensibilities, maybe like mine. <laughs> so I want to talk about how your solution really addresses some of the problems that you highlight um, with the sort of traditional, well, is there a traditional um, understanding, I guess an yeah. older understanding of the void for vagueness doctrine. So you talk about the void for vagueness doctrine as being rather um, under-inclusive in application. So how exactly would this fix that concern of under-inclusivity then? Well, it doesn't, it doesn't seek to fix it. It, 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 it simply points out that uh, the void for vagueness doctrine is under-inclusive. And again, I'm not the first person to make this observation. Uh, Carissa Hessek has a great article where she talks about how um, uh, there are statutes other than vague statutes that involve the same kinds of improper delegations or, or excessive delegations. If you think of you know, any statute that's clear but broad, um, traffic offenses are probably the best example where people are, they're, they're clear. Um, you know, don't go over 35 miles an hour is pretty clear, um, but people are constantly violating it. Um, police can't stop everybody. And so it gives police excessive discretion, um, you know, on who to stop or, you know, for more serious types of statutes, we can think about a statute like uh, was involved in the United States versus Yates, which again was clear uh, as Justice Kagan said in her dissent in that case, it's clear, but broad um, where you, uh, the statute said um, uh, prohibited uh, uh, destroying uh, in relation to any official proceeding, um, any tangible object, that was the operative language. Um, and, you know, a, a the court interpreted that very narrowly to exclude a lot of things, but tangible object really isn't ambiguous. A tangible object is a tangible object. It's something you can hold and feel and see and touch. Um, but it's incredibly broad. And so there are... Um, delegation, you know, excessive delegation slash rule of law problems with lots of statutes that are, uh, that are not vague. Um, that, you know, there are problems with statutes that are, that are clear. There are problems with statutes that are ambiguous, but not vague, um, as we said before. Um, and so that, that observation leads me to the conclusion that this non-delegation aspect of, or excessive delegation aspect or rationale for the void for vagueness doctrine is really not what's driving the doctrine or really not what should be driving the doctrine because that problem is not peculiar to vague statutes. That problem is much more widespread. And my suggestion, I mean, I, I, it's, it's a little caught up, but I, you know, at 88 pages, I didn't want to add my article. This is sort of a separate article, but my, what, I, what I say is, you know, we should come up with a separate doctrine that forbids excessive delegation in all of these contexts, whether we're talking about vague statutes, ambiguous statutes, um, uh, statutes that are broad but clear, 
um, they all exhibit the same problems of allowing excessive or, or, or uh, 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 yeah, well, I guess allowing for excessive delegation. Um, and and if there's a, a and and perhaps there is a due process prescription against legislatures excessively delegating, um, but it's not peculiar to vague statutes by any means. And I think you know by focusing on vague statutes, um, what we're it's it's almost counterproductive because because there are so few statutes that are so indefinite that they're that they're going to be declared vague, and what we're doing is pot shots at Random statutes that are vague, and we say, well, they, they, uh, you know, they, they implicate excessive delegation, and we're ignoring a whole mass of other statutes that do the same thing, but they're not vague. And so we should do something about um, the disease rather than just one symptom of it, which is vague statutes. Great. Yeah, and, and that makes a lot of sense where it's like, why are we just focusing on just the vague statute versus, you know, making this a bit more inclusive? Um, so, But what I found really interesting, too, is that, um, you know, the, some people might, you know, feel like, okay, this is such a crazy new way of looking at, you know, the void for vagueness doctrine, but it isn't necessarily. I thought that it was interesting going back to, you know, some of the older cases from um, the United Kingdom and everything and taking a look at some of those, some of those cases where it's like, okay, this concept of um, focusing on impossibility isn't necessarily um, new, I guess, right? Yeah. Um, I, you know, if you look back at the very beginning of, the um, the Supreme Court's sort of foray into the void for vagueness doctrine, what you'll find is um, cases that really are about statutes that just made it impossible for people to act. So, um, for example, um, you know, inter- the, the very first case, and I think it was 1914, the International Harvester case, um, you know, sort of hinged li- criminal liability on um, uh, growers of a commodity, not, not charging more than the value of the commodity, um, you know, un- under perfect market conditions. Um, and, and there was just no way uh, for, for anyone to figure out what the value of a commodity would be under perfect market conditions. Now, I mean, we can figure out the value of a commodity. It's what people are willing to pay for it. <laughs> but um, the way the statute was drafted, you know, the, the growers had to figure out, well, what would what would the value be? What would people be willing to pay for it if um, the market didn't have these imperfections in it? Um, so it wasn't so much that it was hard to understand. I mean, it's that you can you can sort of explain that you can explain the concept. It's just impossible to comply with. Um, the, the problem is, you know, soon after that, um, the court, I think, took some wrong turns, as I say in the paper, and started applying this doctrine with a vengeance um, to statutes that really were, were difficult to understand, maybe, or were, um, you know, they had some indefinite language, but they weren't impossible to comply with. You know, so, so charging um, unreasonable rates for necessities, uh, for example. Well, again, you know, you can figure out what a reasonable rate is by looking at the market and you can give the statute a wide berth by, you know, making sure you don't charge um, 
you know, a whole lot, or, or, or you know, maybe charge just to be safe, charge less than what you think you should be charging, um, in order to make it um, uh, absolutely positive, you know, absolutely sure that that you're not violating the law. Um, and and I think those those cases have sort of been, um, you know, almost disavowed by the courts. Um, but but if you look back, like I said, to International Harvester, the very first case, it really is. If you look at that statute, it really was impossible to comply with it. So it seems like they've taken this sort of, you know, this track that you were looking at in this paper, you know, and looking at impossibility, but then just sort of applying it like gangbusters. Like, OK, let's just throw it around willy nilly and use it here and here and here when it wasn't really all that appropriate. Um, and and you have a, this really interesting section in your paper, like you were talking about, where, you know, these are the instances where the court kind of takes some wrong turns. Um, but, but you know, what I found really interesting is that when we look at your um, sort of idea of using this impossibility standard instead, it helps to make a bit more sense of some other cases that might not necessarily make sense, like when you take them as a whole. So maybe, could you explain some of those for us by any chance? Um, well, I'm not sure which ones you're referring to. Yeah, like you have a section in your paper where, you know, you talk about how, look, you know, some of these court cases, you know, they, they try to apply these weird enter yeah. requirements, they try to do this weird stuff. And it doesn't necessarily make sense um, until maybe you start, you know, understanding, OK, maybe there's this influence of this impossibility concept. Oh, OK. Yeah, the this the center. um the the center fix, yeah. uh, which um, you know the court started using in uh, around the 1950s, I think, where they said, well, if you know if there's a if there's a scienter requirement, um, you know, if the person has to have some kind of criminal intent to be guilty, then it's not vague, mm-hmm. and that's really been attacked by a lot of people uh, who who you know there there and there are two sides to that argument, and I try not to take sides in the article because I don't really have to. Um, but you know, uh, there, there's a good argument on the one side to say, well, um, just because a statute requires that someone intend to, um, uh, commit, uh, or, or commit some conduct, um, that doesn't make the statute less vague because they still don't know that their conduct violates the law. Scienter only refers to the mental state that attaches to the performing of the conduct. Um, and then there are other people on the other side who say, well, that, you know, ma- makes too much of a distinction between fact and law. Um, and I don't, like I say, I don't take sides on that issue. But, but what I do say about that is um, it makes sense if you think that the scienter uh, uh, thing makes sense if you think about it in terms of impossibility, because once you intend to do something, um, then, you know, you can no longer claim that it was impossible for you to refrain from doing it, right? If I, if I um, uh, wear Argyle socks with sandals um, with the intent to annoy someone, um, well, I could have refrained from doing that. If, I, if, I, if it was my intent all, intent all along, um, not just to look uh, fashionable in, in the way that I think is fashionable, um, but to actually annoy people by doing it, well, I could have I could have refrained from doing that. Now, that's that's a, that would be a really stupid statute, um, and it might have other constitutional problems if there's a you know First Amendment right to dress as I please, 
um, that would certainly you know run aground on the shoals of of the First Amendment. Um, but it's not it's not a vagueness problem. Um, if I you know uh, and, and and it also explains um, and I forget who is the you know again this is not my own but uh, I cite the article um, in my piece. Um, not the first person to make this observation, but it also explains why attempt liability is, is not irretrievably vague. Um, you know, anyone who teaches criminal law, I think, encounters the frustration of students and my own frustration when we go over attempt doctrine and the courts say, well, um, mere preparation is not enough, but perpetration is attempt. And, you know, there's some line between preparation and perpetration that courts have been, you know, very unwilling or maybe incapable of supplying to us. And we have a really wide range of doctrines on where that line is, on where someone commits an attempt. Um, and, and, and that would be, I mean, you know, if you think about vague statutes, you know, attempting to do X um, would always be considered vague, but for the fact that it also requires the specific intent to do X. Um, and so you can always absolve yourself of criminal liability by simply not intending to do X, which is always under your control. So it's always possible to comply with an attempt statute. Well, I, I think that, you know, we, we pretty well covered everything that I, I was hoping to cover. Is there anything else that you just kind of wanted to leave us with, with, with regard to this paper that, you know, really sticks out that you want to impress upon all of us? Well, um, I, I think it's interesting that in the 18th and early 19th centuries, courts were actually talking about um, vagueness and impossibility sometimes together in, in the same case. Um, and I think it's two, I think courts have always sort of confused the two. I think they've talked about them sort of at the same time as if they're the same thing. And, and I guess what I'm trying to do is to, to untangle those strands um, because a vague stat, you know, what we might think of as an indefinite statute will often be um, impossible to comply with, or will sometimes be impossible to comply with, but not always. Um, so, you know, I think it's, it's, you know, it's, it's sort of a subtle distinction. It's not like I'm saying the void for vagueness doctrine is just, you know, uh, you know, 100% wrong. It's that we're really focusing on the wrong aspect of, of what is problematic about these statutes and what's problematic about these statutes when, when there is a problem, it's that, um, they're impossible to comply with, not that they're difficult to understand. So it's more of a reframing of the concept then. Yeah, it's it's a reframing. It's it's a, I think it's a subtle shift, but I think it would be an important shift if if courts were to sort of recognize that. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me today and this was a really fun piece and I do hope that you follow up on it soon. It sounded like you've got more projects related coming down the chute. Um, yeah, I'm thinking about it. I I've, I've got a bunch of things I'd like to do, but <laughs> yeah, I think I will. Okay, fantastic. And yeah, you got to stop wearing those socks with sandals, man. That's just uh, not never, never. <laughs> okay, no, that is annoying. But thank you for joining me. And yeah, I'm looking forward to um, seeing the final product. Thanks.
this is Les Paul and Mary Ford. School bells ring and children sing. It's back to Robert Hall again. Mother knows for better clothes. It's back to Robert Hall again. You'll save more on clothes for school. Shop at Robert.